In the two years since January the 6th, 2021, close to 1,000 people have been charged with federal crimes relating to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The legal process used by the federal justice system to deal with these cases is complicated and often out of sight to the American people. Roger Parloff, an attorney and journalist, has been live-tweeting some of the high-profile trials of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys over the past several weeks. We ask him to explain to us, in some detail, how it all works. Roger Parloff is a senior editor at Lawfare. Roger Parloff, what does it mean to live-tweet a court trial? <laughs> well, it's a pretty grueling process where you... I. I try to actually, you know, come as close as I can to providing a transcript. Um, I don't go crazy with, uh, I'm afraid of a repetitive stress injury, but um, I try to be pretty objective. Others, uh, you know, there are several people that are live tweeting in different ways and some have much more opinionated approach and or just... Uh, or just send out the uh, kernels of the most newsworthy information in their judgment. But uh, I try to provide as close uh, a transcript-like experience as I can so people can really make their judgment. As you and I are talking, it's in the middle of the Proud Boys trial. What does that mean? Uh, Well, this is the uh, third seditious conspiracy trial that's uh, begun in uh, U.S. District Court um, stemming from the January 6th uh, insurrection. And uh, so these are, I mean, really, in reality, uh, probably about three dozen Proud Boys. That's a, a group. Um, uh, I, I can try to explain it a little better in a moment, but about three dozen of them have been arrested. But these five that are on trial now are the um, four of them are considered top leadership. And uh, all five are charged with seditious conspiracy, which is this rare uh, charge um, that's pretty close. Uh, it's analogous to treason, and uh, it has a, a potential 20-year uh, uh, sentence. And uh, the sentencing guidelines treat it very seriously as well because it is analogous to, to treason. So, and they're rare, rare, uh, rarely charged. One of the reasons we wanted you to chat with us was to give people who can't get to Washington, can't get to this court, to get some sense of the atmosphere. Where is the U.S. District Court in Washington? Uh, it's on Third Street, um, and it's really just uh, – I mean, you can see the Capitol from the uh, windows of the cafeteria or various uh, other other uh, offices there. Uh, so it's uh, – uh, you know, five minutes from from everything that happened, and uh, it's also uh, about ten minutes from where we are <laughs> right now. Um, and uh, it, this happens to be in the annex of the uh, uh, courthouse. The courthouse was built in 19, around 1950, and the annex around 2005. It's a very handsome b- building, in fact. If you were coming from the White House area and marching up to the Capitol. On that day, January the 6th, you could have walked by the court? Yes, exactly. What's the courtroom itself like? Uh, it's uh, 24A. Uh, well, A stands for annex. 
I think. Um, and it's it's very handsome. It's it's uh, they have uh, they are uh, I say they. Uh, um, it's on the fourth floor. It's uh, wood paneled. Um, uh, there's some uh, white marble behind the judge, um, and uh, there's about four pew-like uh, uh, benches um, with an aisle and uh, and a bar separating uh, the spectators from uh, from the well. So. Uh, and it's a fairly large. It's, I understand it's not the largest. Um, they do have a ceremonial courtroom, but uh, it's one of the larger courtrooms, I believe. Who can sit in on a trial like this? Anybody, anybody. It's a public trial. Um, they it's on on a few occasions, like uh, openings or closings, it, it might get so crowded that there would be an overflow courtroom, and then. Uh, uh, and then often the media, like me, uh, will go down and um, there's a media room for the uh, uh, reporters where they can use uh, um, uh, phones and uh, computers. And that's that's if you're going to live tweet, you need to be there. Have you sat through any other of these January 6th trials? Yes, I uh, live tweeted uh, – the Oath Keepers Seditious Conspiracy Trial, the first one, which was uh, with uh, the top defendant was uh, Elmer Stewart Rhodes III. Um, and uh, that was about a six-week trial, and I was there for all of it except about two hours. I had to miss one cross-examination once. How many defendants were there and what were the sentences? Not the sentences, but what were the uh, – what did, what did the jury decide? Um, that was five defendants, and uh, it was a uh, split verdict. Um, and on the top charges, only two of the five were convicted of seditious conspiracy, Rhodes and uh, the second allegedly most culpable defendant, Kelly, Ro- uh, Kelly Meggs. Um, there has now been a, a second uh, um, uh, Oath Keepers trial has been completed, and all four defendants in that one were convicted of the top charge sedition in the in the oath keepers trial there were other charges and everybody was convicted of something um and uh, most of them were convicted of um some pretty serious conspiracy charges which are also which also carry a 20 year maximum penalty in the proud boys trial going on right now and i should say i have sat in on it so i know what it looks like but uh, are the defendants always in the room? Yes, they have a constitutional right to be in the room. So, uh, if they're going to miss something, they have to waive uh, specifically, and uh, um, so they're generally in the room. Maybe if it's a, a pure hearing on uh, legal matters, they'll uh, waive their appearance. Current five defendants: Ethan Nordine, Joseph Biggs, Zachary Rell, Enrique. Tario and Dominic Pizzola, are they in jail? Yes, they're all detained pretrial detention. Does the jury know that? No, they come in dressed in uh, civilian clothes. And I must say, looking at them, they're quite well-dressed and clean-shaven, shall we say. Yes, and some of them are a lot more clean-shaven than they were on January 6th. Do you have any contact with them during a trial like this? No. Did they come from I mean, you? sometimes eye contact. Yeah. 
when they come from the the jail, are they brought together and do they leave the courthouse and go right back to jail? They do file out together. That's uh, the marshals bring them out all at once. Uh, uh, Honestly, I don't know uh, the process when they leave. Um, I believe all of them are being held at an Alexandria, a place called the Alexandria Detention Center, which is actually a state facility, and the marshals have some agreement with them. But that's been a big problem. Um, The defendants have complained a lot about not having uh, time to, uh, they're not permitted to to download uh, the tremendous amount of digital evidence uh, uh, that they should be able to review. And um, unfortunately, the federal marshals aren't in direct control of that either. And there's a lot of negotiation where the, the judge will speak to the marshals and the marshals will negotiate with the state uh, P, uh, representatives or the uh, who control this Alexandria Detention Center. Uh, so that's been a problem. Judge Tim Kelly in the court, of course, every day. What's he like? Do you know anything about him? Uh, yeah, he's a former federal prosecutor. And then, then he became a uh, he was chief counsel uh, in a couple different areas to the Senate Judiciary Committee under uh, Grassley, Senator Grassley. So uh, I believe national security was one of his portfolio items, and I, f- I forget the other. Um, and he's a, he's a Trump appointee. He's very um, um, he, he's very deliberative. I would say for some, I would, I would say he's a fairly new judge. And um, uh, his patience is greater than that of most judges I see in that courtroom. Um, he lets the the attorneys really argue and re-argue and re-argue. Um, but I, I think he's beginning to lose his patience with some of that. One day when I was there, I counted there were 41 people, <clears throat> including the jury, by the way, in front of the bar. I those people would include the defense attorneys, the prosecutors and all that. How many defense attorneys are there supporting these five? And why are the five being tried together? Uh, as if, uh, I would I can't I don't have offhand the exact number of attorneys. I, I think there's about um, there's certainly two for Tario, certainly two for Pozzola, certainly two for Biggs. And um, there's also paralegals mixed in there, so I'm, I'm not positive about that. Uh, th- this is a conspiracy case. So ordinarily in a conspiracy case, you try to con- – uh, tr- I mean the government tries to try them together. Often the defendants try to get severances so that that doesn't happen. But the law favors uh, the efficiency and uh, of the mul- multiple trial there. In fact – the, the oath keep with the oath keepers. I said there were two trials. I mean, the prosecution wanted to try all nine of them together, and there simply wasn't a room big enough in that courthouse. Uh, so that's why they split it up into five and four. In this Proud Boys case, are they all charged with the same number of counts? Uh, not exactly. No, um, all are charged with the first, at least the first four which are uh, three major conspiracy counts. Um, They're all charged with a count called corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. Uh, And then 
Um, uh, then there are some charges like um, assault, which I think they are all charged with on the theory of aiding and abetting or conspiracy, even though they didn't physically assault people. Same with destruction of property. Uh, Pizzola alone is charged with, uh, Dominic Pizzola, with a, a charge called uh, robbery, which is actually uh, robbery of a police officer's. Uh, he's, he wrested away from a police officer a riot shield, which is a, 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 a riot shield that many of your viewers have seen because he later uses the riot shield to break out two of the windows um, uh, just south of uh, uh, the Senate wing door on the Upper West Terrace on the west side, which is where the first rioters enter the building that, through those window panes. When you can, see- I, can I? Yeah. I mentioned that uh, uh, Judge Kelly is a Trump appointee, and I just want to add that there isn't any shred. Uh, I don't see any shred of uh, political. Uh, colors coming through with respect to his rulings. I I think he's quite down the middle. Um, uh, So I I just want to make that clear. But as you sit in the courtroom, what do you see? In other words, as you look off and to the left and see the defendants sitting there, what do they look like to you? And, you know, how do they behave during these uh, sessions? Well, uh, like you say, well, uh, the they are off to the left on the far left the jury is on the far right um and uh and and i think that's sort of the convention at least in federal court almost every court i've seen is that you you try to position the defendants as far from the jury as possible so the jury doesn't get worried usually the prosecution table is between um uh, the jurors and the defense counsel table, and then you finally get to the defendants. Um, and uh, like you say, they're, they're, uh, some of them are very nattily dressed, especially uh, uh, Enrique Tario, um, who's from Miami. He's a, a good-looking guy, uh, very well well uh, coiffed. Um, Dominic Pizzola... You know, if you see the pictures of him on January 6th, he, he I, I don't want to, this is a little prejudicial, but he looks a little, you know, Charlie Manson-ish. You know, he has long <laughs> hair, and, uh, uh, <clears throat> sort of salt and pepper hair uh, and uh, beard and so on. He is completely clean shaven and uh, uh, almost crew cut. So I think that was a good decision on somebody's part to, to have, to clean him up for this. Um, and the same Biggs uh, in in the pictures uh, looks uh, Joe Biggs. Um, he's he's uh, more coiffed. He looks thinner, but that might be. Uh, I'm not positive on January sixth. He might have been wearing body armor, so that might have given him some bulk. Uh, I I don't know about that. I think <clears throat> if my numbers are correct, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The age <clears throat> the ages on these five. They're all in their 30s except for Pozzola, who is about 44 years old, 45. Um, gee, I'm, I'm, I can't do that uh, offhand. Uh, Biggs looks a little older than that to me, but you, you – Biggs, I think, is 38. Oh, okay. If, but okay. anyway, just mm-hmm. – so you, that's what you see in the court. But, but more importantly, I want to go back to the beginning. Oh, and you're right. Real uh, – Zachary Real looks quite young, but I think you're right. He's in his 30, young, early 30s. Go back to the beginning on January the 6th. How long did it take the government to 
go through the process of charging these people, and how did that process work? Well, the f- first one charged, I believe, was Nordine uh, uh, around um, r- roughly January 19th or January 20th, 21st. Um, and w- what happened was Tario, Enrique Tario, was the uh, at that time the uh, uh, chairman of the Proud Boys National Organization, and uh, but he wasn't present on January sixth. He came to participate in January sixth. On January fourth, he arrived at National Airport, but he was arrested because he had been here in D.C. in December on December 12th and had been involved in some vandalism, uh, the the burning of a BLM flag, a Black Lives Matter flag. So he was arrested on January 4th. And I should say they were ready for him. They had about 15 people at National, I mean at Reagan National, (laughs) I'm showing my age, uh, at Reagan National, and they followed him until he came into the D.C. jurisdiction and then they arrested him. And he had on his person at that point uh, two uh, uh, high-capacity uh, rifle magazines as well, which are illegal in D.C., sort of uh, the sort of magazines you'd put in an AR-15 or an M4 assault rifle with at least 10 rounds, so it was illegal. Um, uh, and uh, I think I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> well, one of the things I want to mention is because the building we're in, our studios are in, is where the garage is. Oh. Where the Oath Keepers and Stuart Rhodes and Tario met the night before January the 6th. That's I'm not I'm not completely sure what they did there, but that's played a role in the uh, trial so far. Is there any way for you to put that in perspective? Yeah, it has come in. Um Nobody's uh, too sure about what happened. He he was, like I said, he was arrested January 4th. Now I, I remember why I was going through this, but uh, he was arrested January 4th, and then he was released January 5th, and he was told, you need, as a condition of release, you need to leave the city. And before he left the city, he went to the uh, Phoenix Park Hotel, and then he went to the garage you're talking about, and he had a meeting with several people, including uh, Stuart Rhodes. And uh, they and it has a surreptitious feel to it, but um, they haven't really shown uh, – there was a filmmaker present, which is why we, we do have some footage. And what they really wanted to introduce was uh, a segment – that uh, where there is a male voice that uh, and the camera is no longer on anybody. Tario has has asked, "Can you the cameraman to move away?" And there's a male voice saying something like, and I don't have the exact words in front of me, something like, "It's going to happen. It's inevitable. We need to be str- strong, fast, and together." They wanted to introduce that, but uh, the, the the judge wanted a little more uh, certainty that Tario was present for that. You couldn't even see who was saying it. And um, the, the government thought they could provide that, but then the government just sort of backed away and maybe they felt it was – the prosecutor said, I think it's too much of a squeeze. And so we never the, – the jury never heard that. The reason I was mentioning that Tario was arrested was that – 
that's why the the name of this case is USA versus Nordine. And Nordine was the first to be arrested. Tario wasn't arrested until almost a year later, um, and and uh, in in twenty twenty two. And I think that's after they had uh, they had seized phones of all the other defendants. They had you know been able to uh, uh, get access to these encrypted telegram um, messages that they were able to build a case against Tario as well. And that's when they 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 both. They indicted him, and they upped the charges to seditious conspiracy for the first time. What's the difference between an uh, Oath Keeper and Proud Boys, and how large were those organizations? And are they at all competitive? Hmm. The the Oath Keepers are more of a paramilitary group. I don't think they like being called that. They, but uh, they're definitely uh, they definitely dress up like soldiers and uh, uh, fatigues. And, and in fact, on January 6th, uh, that was what was so striking about them. They were the ones dressed up like soldiers, helmets, tactical vests, um, camo, uh, and uh, they were walking up the east steps in uh, what was what the government called stack formation, right hands on the right shoulder of the cadre in front of them, a very military, seemingly disciplined approach. And they're very, they're very much into uh, guns. And uh, right f- just for a moment, Stuart Rhodes, who ran the Oath Keepers, went to the same law school that you did. Uh, yeah. No, and you know, <laughs> what is that? You're sitting there watching this, and there's a Yale Law School graduate <laughs> who's being tried and a head of the Oath Keepers, and you're also a Yale <laughs> Law School graduate. Well, uh, he 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 has been disbarred in the interim, and that had actually happened before any of these events. Uh, yeah, I guess he was always a, uh, um, he 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 was a libertarian. He was a follower of, um, uh, uh, what is Rand Paul's father? Um, Ron Paul. Ron Paul. Um, and he worked for Ron Paul in the Capitol for a while. He was a legislative aide, but he uh, eventually became um, uh, well. He w- he went out and became involved in sort of uh, the Bundy Ranch sort of stuff, and uh, uh, he got further and further out there and uh, was disbarred uh, um, long before these events. But he did sort of fancy himself a constitutional expert, and he had a uh, sort of uh, quasi, uh, he had a, uh, a little wacky theory about what something called the Insurrection Act he enabled him to do. He thought that the president had the power to call up, and nobody knows really if this is true, um, had power to call up the, this this disorganized militia. We know the government. You know, we know the president can call up the national guard. He thinks he can also call up this ragtag group of men with guns who used to work for. You know, a lot of them are vets. Um, that he could call those up as an armed force to help him quell rebellion. Uh, and uh, so, those played a role in his uh, in his thinking about January 6th. So the, how? what's the number that have been charged? 
What's the number that have been convicted? A bench trial where the judge decides versus a jury trial. Do you have that stuff on the top of your head? You mean January 6th generally or you mean January, keepers? No, no, January 6th. The, the oh, whole, the whole oh, oh. group. Uh, almost 950 people have been charged federally in federal court uh, for for uh, crime stemming from January 6th. Um, and then what was the next question you had about? How many have been convicted um, in a trial? Well, in a trial... Uh, We've had a lot of guilty pleas. We've had close to uh, more than half have pleaded guilty, uh, have been convicted one way or another. Uh, I believe I'm aware of about uh, 33 contested, maybe 36 contested trials, including both juries and bench trials, bench meaning they're tried in front of a judge, and about 46 people that have in those trials, because some of the trials have been multiple defendants. And then we've probably had, you know, close to 500 guilty pleas. And uh, so it's been quite a... And we've had 10 convictions at this point of seditious conspiracy, which is really pretty remarkable. We we haven't had 10 convictions for seditious conspiracy since, um, I think, the 1995 trial of... uh, 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 Rahman, either Abdel Oman or Oman Ra- Abdel, I forget, the, the sheikh who uh, conspired to uh, bomb the uh, World Trade Center building and he had s- several other plots going. Go back, and this is process, but go back to uh, how did these defendants end up in that courtroom? In other words, what was the process that got them there? Uh, well, so Nor- I think Nordine was about the first to be arrested, and, and I don't know the exact order between um, Zach Reel and, and Joe Biggs. And originally there was also a fellow named Donahoe, uh, and, um, uh, I'm blanking on his first name, I think it's Charles, and he pled guilty, and we will uh, probably hear from him at some point in this trial. Um a fairly high up proud boy and then when he pled guilty they uh and and they decided to they were able to charge Tario they moved Pizzola from a different indictment into this indictment and the theory of the proud boys case uh is that they used force a seditious conspiracy the two two Types that are involved here are uh, a conspiracy to use force um, to um, a, a, against the authority of the United States, or another branch is to use force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of laws of the United States. In this case, the laws governing the transfer of presidential power. So. Here, the theory isn't that they so much personally used force, but they used others to use force. They, they, they had this tight group, and they sort of manipulated their, the other Proud Boys and some of the crowd, what they called the normies, to, to do the force for them. They, inst- they incited uh, the, the, these people to, to use force. And Pozzola is a fairly low level. He he was a he only joined he was a recruit practically and then he joined he was made a 
a low-level proud boy in December, but he was up and coming, and he was very tough. He was a Marine uh, infantry, I mean, a, a retired Marine infantry guy and a Ford, former Golden Gloves uh, champion, and uh, they wanted people like that that uh, they could use to to uh, to really. Uh, that's the government's theory to to breach the barriers and so on. And of course, it was Pozzola who uh, broke the first windows and allowed the first rioters to go in. Was there a grand jury for these five? Yes. Yeah. And when did that grand jury meet and when did they charge? I mean, how long have they had to wait for the trial? Uh, My memory from reading about it is that the judge put them in put them in jail. That at one time they were on uh, home reconnaissance. (laughs) They were home and, and, uh, you know, they were watched with the satellite hookup and all that stuff. But... uh, Mm. Um, I'm sorry, I don't think I I know those details. Uh, Tario was not arrested until January of 2022. Uh, so they've been I waiting thought, for I a thought, long... I thought, I thought Nordine has been in custody pretty much since January of 2021. Uh, a lot of them have been complaining about, you know, it's now two years in custody. Uh, but I don't know all the details. When you're in the courtroom, there are two times you stand. <laughs> what are those? Uh, when the judge comes in and uh, when the jury comes in. Why do people, And when they leave. Why do people stand for the jury? Uh, I couldn't tell you when that originated, but I, I guess, you know, they are the triers of fact. The uh, judge is the—he the, uh, the, the, uh, decides the law, the jury decides the fact. So in a way, they're analogous to the judge. One of the more painful processes to watch in this case was the jury selection. How long did it take and why do you think it took so long? Uh, it was at, at least uh, 10 days. Um, and uh, and juries in many of these cases have taken, you know, one day or, or a half day. Uh, and th- it was much harder here even compared to the Oath Keepers. A lot of people had heard of the Proud Boys, uh, and part of it was um, because, uh, well, a few things. You, you, part of it is that uh, President Trump was asked about them in a uh, then President Trump in a, you know the debate in September 2020. Um, I think uh, Biden was asking him if he would uh, disavow the Proud Boys, and he said. Uh, stand back and stand by. Um, so a lot of people that didn't know about them found out about them then. And then in December 2020, there were these uh, violent. Uh, there was a there was a Million MAGA March two. The Million MAGA March one was November 14. December 12 was Million MAGA two, and the Proud Boys came for that, and there were. There was some violence on the night of December 12th, um, and that's when Tario, when the Proud Boys ripped down a Black Lives Matter flag from the Asbury Methodist, United Methodist Church, and burned it. And Tario was there for the burning of of that flag uh, banner. And uh, also that night there was some violence and some, some of the Proud Boys were stabbed. So 
so a lot of people know about that incident, and uh, I mean in D.C., know varying degrees of that incident. Now, the judge, that incident is being brought in to this case for certain limited reasons. The judge is keeping out, trying to keep out the fact that it's a Black Lives Matter flag just because that he judges that as unduly prejudicial. It's not related to the issues of this case. A lot of people in D.C. are going to be sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter movement generally. And um, in fact, one of the jurors had a has a uh, had a Black Lives Matter flag on her in her yard, um, uh, I think, during jury selection. But um, uh, so that's they're trying to keep that out. Um, But for a lot of these reasons, a lot of people had heard. Oh, and also the hearings, the January 6th, the select House committee focused on the Proud Boys. So everyone had heard about them. Uh, I mean, a lot of people had heard. Not everyone. But um, uh, that was part of the problem. You go through the judge gave a a long questionnaire, roughly 60 questions. I think he started with 150, a panel of 150. He gave a questionnaire of maybe 60 questions. He eliminated some people on the basis of that, partly for bias, partly for hardship. You know, like I've already purchased tickets for a vacation, you know, um, or deafness or, you know, things like that. Uh, And then uh, he brought in... uh, a fairly large group to to question individually, and a lot of those he dismissed for those two reasons too, uh, for cause because of fixed opinions that they couldn't really put aside, um, or he suspected even though they said they could put him aside, uh, the the events of that day had been too close to the bone, or because they had some sort of hardship, and then finally uh, he. Um, uh, uh, he had enough. Uh, he, he wanted twelve jurors plus four alternates, uh, and uh, that's the that's who we picked. And the first day the jury was picked, one called in one of the alternates. Like, well, not, we didn't. We don't know with COVID. That's right. Yeah. So we're now we're down to three alternates, and I left out that uh, there's a process, of course, where the judges get to. Uh, uh, they have what are called peremptory challenges. They can uh, they, uh, they they can eliminate a certain number of people without giving a reason. Um, I think the defense had collectively twelve. The prosecution had eight. Um, but I think if anybody is convicted here, the uh, partiality or impartiality of the jury. I mean the partiality will be the claim that, that I think it will be an issue on appeal. They have tried very hard uh, the, the defense they wanted to transfer it out of D.C. They said we just can't get a fair trial in D.C. Um, they tried to especially t- to get it moved to uh, e- either, well at first they were saying Alexandria, Virginia which doesn't make a lot of sense because it's the same media market but then Miami, uh, Miami where Terry is from one of the defense attorneys told me in the hallway, just chit-chatting, and I will try not to indicate who it was, that when this person defends in the district, normally they love the fact that juries are liberals because they're defending people who have been charged with crimes. This time around, they're very concerned because they're liberals. And if you sat through the voir dire, 
you kept hearing their politics. Uh, and I have no idea what their politics, you know, asked for each one of them was. But this person is concerned because of that. And I keep remembering the defense attorneys keep saying all the time, <clears throat> Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and putting that on the defendants and the, the image of the defendants, uh, the Proud Boys. What do you think that all that means in the, in the long run? I, I, I think it will definitely be an issue on appeal if they're convicted. The law in this area gives a lot of discretion to the judge. The judge did a very thorough jury selection process. The law also is clear that, you know, it's understood that in a a case with notoriety uh, and uh, our sophisticated electronic media most people are going to have been exposed to some so it's not that you need to have never heard of these people it's that you need to be able to put these things out of your mind and if the law is uh, remains as it has been uh, I think uh, there won't be a problem Um, you know think just think of some of the other cases we've had the Boston Marathon bomber you know uh, the uh, uh, Enron defendants, uh, you know, the whole Enron was so crucial to Houston's economy. Um, we've had, uh, and then lots of murder, notorious murders in small rural areas where there there isn't a big jury pool to begin with, and everyone's heard of it, and sometimes you've even had confessions broadcast. So, um, if the law stays where it, and then of course the ultimate—I mean, for for DC, there's the Watergate cases. That's where the uh, key precedents come for the DC uh, courts, is from the DC Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals here in DC, uh, emanating out of the Watergate cases, where you had uh, you had an impeachment, you had uh, the Senate Watergate hearings. Everybody had heard of it. The Washington Post is a part of the story. But uh, they they upheld it. But there was one judge in the water in the Watergate case. Um, I think it was McKinnon. Uh, it, it went up eventually to what's called the end bank court. All all of all. I think there were six judges on the case, and one of them on his own raised a question about just how democratic this town was tall d democratic and uh and given a a, a a sort of politically tinged case and he thought it should have been uh moved out and nobody had raised that none of the defendants had raised it and it was a different time a more gracious era you know where but I, that's going to be an issue too um th- this time around is is the fact uh, the the political uh, because we have I think about more than ninety percent of the DC of uh, voted against Trump in both both elections so um, uh, that's an issue. I asked one of the defense attorneys how these people can afford these attorneys because they're in there for six seven maybe for two years, and I was told that two of the defendants attorneys are being paid for by the government by the taxpayer. Do you know which ones those are? Um, 
But my my understanding, I know one of them is Rell, uh, Zach Rell, and that, his, his attorney is Carmen Hernandez. Yeah, I'm I'm afraid uh, I don't. Uh, that sounds right. I I can't really. Uh, I I don't know which ones are are uh, retained and which aren't. So, but they have some very good representation. Uh, uh, I think. In, including Rel, um, he uh, there's some very good lawyers out there. Now, now they're not all on the same page. They're, they're, the defenses are clashing at points, and even I sense some friction personally as well. But um, but there's good lawyers out there. One of the more high-profile attorneys in the room, as you know, is Norm Pattis. Who is Norm Pattis? Yeah, he's a attorney in uh, New Haven. And uh, he, uh, he, he, for you old timers out there, he sort of reminds me a little of uh, William Kunstler, if you uh, remember him. He's uh, uh, who was uh, represented the '60s radicals and the uh, the Chicago's one of the Chicago Seven. Um, Pattis has a long ponytail down to the middle of his back, practically, and uh, he's a, a very forceful, uh, very well prepared very fluent, uh, succinct uh, uh, lawyer. But he, he represented Alex Jones recently in the defamation case that uh, did not go well for his client, uh, where he uh, uh, Jones, uh, I think, is facing a $1.4 billion verdict. So On the Sandy Hook trial. Yeah, the Sandy Hook trial. And what trial. he said about that that tragedy what jones did yeah and uh but while that was going on pattis um had a uh he allegedly uh miss he, he sent some medical documents of the plaintiffs uh to co-counsel in other states and apparently that was a violation of the rules uh uh, and uh, the, at least the judge, trial judge, thought so, and she has uh, suspended him for six months, and um, so that threw a, a wrench momentarily into this case because that's his only bar license. So, um, meaning Connecticut's only bar yeah, license. Mm-hmm. and he was practicing here on the basis of that license, but he has gotten an emergency stay, uh, so for the for for the time being, he's he's okay. The reason I bring him up is, among other things, he's the one that said this is a company town uh, in the early part of the trial, in- implying that people all vote the same and think the same. Uh, he actually the government. he actually said that um, uh, Thursday in front of the jury, and uh, the judge uh, there was an objection; <laughs> it was sustained. Um, <laughs> but go ahead. Well, he. I just learned this morning that he has a podcast, a daily podcast, and I've got a couple of clips mm. from yesterday. We're, we're talking about this on a Friday. The court is not in today. And he, just let's listen a little bit to what he had to say yesterday uh, about, right? He was before he went to court. Here, here is Norm Pass. You can see how much of a storyteller Norm really is by and through his familiarity with the facts and, uh, and, and also experience with the law. So, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa! Text message. Court just emailed. No court today. Wait whoa. a minute. Wait a minute, folks. You're getting this in real time, so do not be heading over to the pretty man court. Do. Uh, wow. No court. Wow. Today. 
I feel good. <laughs> Wait a minute. Did Brandy have this information before us? <laughs> there, wow. We, wow. Wow. Well, guess who just got a four day weekend? The wow was Norm Pattis there. Uh, have you heard that? No, no. It's interesting. I so That's the last thing I expected to hear from him in this podcast. But what kind of restrictions are there on these attorneys for talking outside of the court? Wow. Um, I don't know if he's issued any kind of a, a order about that. Certainly everyone is ordinarily... Uh, very careful with their words. I, I don't. I don't know another attorney in this case who is doing podcasts. Uh, <laughs> while, while well, we were following you, and then yesterday, ready for your live streaming, and all of a sudden, you said they've. They're not going to meet today. Well, did you ever find out why? Oh well, to, uh, actually, today, Friday, they were not. They. Uh, that's. He often takes a half day Friday and, and this time he had a full schedule but Thursday was the surprise um, no we did not find out um, there's uh, he, he's been pushing very hard uh, sometimes we stay we go from nine to six uh, which is a long day especially for uh, live blogging <laughs> and um, uh, so uh, uh, there have been rumors that he just got sick or something like that but uh, well Again, let's go back to sitting in the court, and you have their 15 jury members sitting there. And they've been told that they can't tell their spouse, their friends. They can tell them they're, in a, they're in a, on a jury trial, but they can't tell them which one. They can't talk to each other on a day-to-day basis about these, what's going on in the courtroom. They can't read a newspaper story or watch your Roger Parlov blog – and in effect, they're really boxed in. Explain why that's the case. Well, you do try to, from the very beginning, you know, from the beginning of jury instruction, they begin to drum into them that they need to uh, ignore or, or try to avoid media about this and, and uh, about the Proud Boys and then about January 6th generally um, and in part just to try to to make sure that they they decide the case based solely on the facts that are before before them and it's uh it's it's difficult with uh with a case with enormous notoriety uh so they just keep drumming that into them norm pattis as i said it was he's a defense attorney for joseph biggs uh, I believe it's Joseph. Yeah, I want to make sure yes. it is. And anyway, the reason I bring him back up again because he talked on his podcast on yesterday about media coverage. Let's listen to what he says about the media. It's very distressing. You know, I, I sent I sent uh, I sent Mike a copy of part of the cross examination of of the witness yesterday. I don't know if we'll get a chance to post that, but I would encourage those of you who I, are I'm happy to post it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I would encourage those of you who are interested in court proceedings uh, to read trial transcripts because, you know, evidence comes in a question at, at a time an answer at a time. And I fear that when a court reporter goes to court, you know, at the end of the day, they've got to come up with six or eight hundred words of copy and they've sat in a courtroom all day long, you know, for
from nine to five or six, whatever the case may be. And now they've got to come up with something at the end of the day to please their editor. And what they want to come up with is something that's interesting. So they'll usually isolate a fact or factor and build the story around that. And often it is the case that something's taken out of context or over-exaggerated or overemphasized. And the result is the public is getting misperceptions about the trial. What do you think? Well, it's a challenge to, you know, write an 800-word article about a complex trial that's ongoing. Um, And uh, I think... Uh, people do the best they can uh uh it's uh you know i'm not surprised that he's uh disappointed uh and um but i I, you know i think people do the best they can well go back to the atmosphere i mean we live in this town and it's easy if you want to go to the court and watch this it's easy to read you live tweeting every day i kept thinking i'm sitting there they've already done the 950 uh you know they've already charged them with crimes and i've been told that there's another thousand to go before it's all over and that these court sessions could go on for a very long time do you think the public outside of here is paying any attention well that's a very good question outside of here is a good question you know outside of dc i I think that's a really good question um i think uh you know there's local coverage of local defendants um i i think when you have 950 cases there can't but be some uh loss of uh uh interest and um but uh and I, I I doubt we'll have another thousand, but uh, uh, and we're also getting a lot of pushback at this point from the new Republican uh, House. Um, it's going to start. Uh, uh, they're going to try to somehow uh, throw a wrench into things. Um, and of course, if there's a Republican president in uh, 2024, you need to worry about pardons. Um, or think about, <laughs> be concerned about pardons. And um, uh, I I just don't have my fingers on the pulse of the uh, uh, public, especially out in uh, different parts of the country. The, the reason I mention it is because this is a very expensive, time-consuming uh, process where a lot of lives are being affected. And in other words, do you think people that, would be up against doing this again someday, find this as a deterrent. And they're going to, a lot of these people are going to jail. They already have. Yeah. They will find it, I think whether they find it a deterrent will depend a lot about whether people start getting pardons. And I think another issue is whether the former president uh, faces charges. There is something, you know, some of the judges have referred to this in very, with varying degrees of, you know, everyone is there because they believed the election lies, basically. And uh, so Trump is front and center. And in many of the cases, the defendants are pointing the finger at him. 
You know, in this case, the Proud Boys case, uh, he's going to be, they're pointing the finger at him. Uh, Tar- uh, Enrique Tarrio specifically, uh, Nordine obliquely, uh, I think uh, Biggs to some extent, Biggs now is trying to, um, would like to um, subpoena Trump. I, I, I doubt that's going to happen, but uh, Norm Pattis mentioned he's going to try to do that. Um, but in all these cases, and some judges have said, you know, these are the pawns. These are the pawns, the, referring to the January 6th defendants in front of him. And if Trump doesn't face any uh, charges, uh, all of this uh, has an uncomfortable feel to it that, uh, that you know, maybe the president uh, really is above the law. That uh, because you've got these 900 people, 50 people doing his bidding, and they're all being prosecuted, and and we we can't. He goes free. Is that is that the message? Let me go back to the courtroom and process. Um, from your observation, who are the very few people that are actually sitting in the courtroom in the uh, the public part? Well, a lot of them are are wives and family, uh, uh, also uh, uh, not just of these defendants, but uh, of other January 6th defendants. Um, Guy Reffitt uh, was the first uh, January 6th defendant to go to trial, I believe. He was, it was a very serious case. He brought guns with him uh, to the Capitol. Um but she's been attending most of these. Um, uh, Ashley Babbitt's mother is often there. Uh, some others, um, and some of them uh, obviously they they view the uh, January sixth defendants as political prisoners. Um, and one thing that has come out of this is that the, the conditions at the various DC jails are uh, pretty horrible. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, for the most part, a lot of a lot of the defendants are typically uh, black. And uh, if they have politics, they're Democrat. Now you have some people that are white and that are Republican and uh, they are uh, outraged. And uh, some of the Republican congressmen are outraged. And it, and it would be nice to see. Uh, Congress or the District of Columbia appropriate some funds to uh, create some uh, humane conditions uh, in these institutions. You just should mention that Enrico Tarrio is a Cuban, Afro-Cuban, Afro-Cuban American. Yes, he identifies as Afro-Cuban. Born yeah. in Miami, I believe. That's right. And the Proud Boys, I guess I, I, I never quite got around to answering your question about the Oath Keepers versus the Proud Boys. The Oath Keepers, I would say, are sort of a more rural type phenomenon. They tend to be, uh, you know, uh, Rhodes himself uh, has lived in, uh, well, I guess he was in Las Vegas. He was in Montana. Um, the Oath Keeper. The Oath Keepers. Um, the Proud Boys have some more urban elements like Tario and uh, Tario himself uh, after that garage meeting he was talking to the film maker and he was saying that uh, you know he has some respect for uh, Rhodes and their their sort of 
doing parallel things, but he also called him that uh, something like that uh, one-eyed cowboy hillbilly, <laughs> so which was not so uh, not so uh, endearing. But um, I think that he views his group as more urban and more. But the, the Proud Boys are sort of they were formed more recently. They were formed around 2016. And they also describe themselves as a, uh, uh, a, 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 a political club with a drinking problem and a drinking club with a political problem. Um, they do like to brawl, and uh, it's hard to make generalizations. A lot of people, a lot of people in the jury associated them with white supremacy. Um, they do not they claim that's false and and the fact that the chairman is uh Af- afro cuban um is something that they uh draw attention to the the filmmaker who spent a lot of time with them said it it was it was hard to tell that you know they're overwhelmingly white overwhelmingly men um but they there are exceptions and uh, uh it's it's hard to draw um um, uh, generalizations. Let me ask you some quick questions. Again, this is a lot of this is process. How many in the room are on the government prosecuting team? Uh, Just roughly. Mm, I, I, you see about seven, I, I'd say. Um, maybe four, four or five lawyers and then some paralegals. Who picks the judge for the uh, trial like this? I think it's done by lottery. Is there a time set uh, or a time limit set on this trial? No. Uh, so it can go on as long as there's witnesses and yeah, cross-examination. Yeah. At some point, uh, Judge Kelly has to sort of try to curb the lawyers from going on unnecessarily rep- repetition. But no, there's no limit. Is there a transcript of the trial? Yes. How can you get access to it? Um, there are court reporters. You would write the court reporter, and, and it's quite expensive, um, especially if you're the first. Um, you won't be the first because the attorneys are ordering them. Um, and uh, so to get a, a – you, you, it, so it's a little less expensive. It's still, it's still a little pricey, especially um, – yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not cheap. And then it also depends how quickly you need, what kind of turnaround you need. One of the things that happens in the courtroom all the time is something called a sidebar. And all of a sudden, 15 people in the room have a phone in their ear and noise comes out of the speakers. Explain that. Yeah, well, in the olden days, uh, the lawyers would go up and uh, to the bench and uh, they'd huddle up there and they'd whisper uh, so that the jury couldn't hear them and when they're talking about evidentiary issues or things like that. And uh, But now they have a different process where they have phones and they, uh, they the, all, the, all the lawyers have phones and they then they, they put this white noise in the uh, room so that hopefully the jurors won't, won't hear them talking. It's a, it's a pretty good system. So as you watch the defense attorneys uh, in the court, what what is your sense? Uh, what are they like? I mean, wh- who who's outspoken? Uh, who always is moving for a mistrial? Uh, they're all always moving for mistrials. 
Um, they're exceedingly uh, – there's some exceedingly tenacious lawyers there, um, Carmen Hernandez for real, uh, Nick Smith for um, Nordine. Um, Pattis uh, has a commanding presence. Um, he's very concise, uh, 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 although he, he did his cross uh, on Thursday, went on for a while. Um, now, there's a lawyer for uh, – there's a couple lawyers for Pozzola. Uh, one of them, Roger Roots, is sort of a uh, – he's a, mo- a little more – I would call him a little more of a movement lawyer maybe. He he uh, lives in Montana. He's licensed in Rhode Island. Um, the first time he – and this goes back a ways. It might might be unfair, but – the first time he tried to get admitted to the bar, he was uh, not permitted by the Supreme Court of Rhode Island uh, because of prior criminal uh, convictions and uh, alleged white supremacist uh, uh, associations. But uh, I guess he denounced those uh, and uh, um, and persuaded the bar to admit him. That's a while back. But uh, he is still taking positions that are quite different from, for instance, Nordine's lawyers and um, Tario's lawyers. Uh, Tario's lawyers, uh, uh, t- two guys from Miami who are very good, Sabino Horegi and um, uh, Nayib Hassan. Um, you know, uh, Horegi, I think, in his opening, he said, he said, um, Words to the effect that, look, uh, January 6th was horrible, it's unacceptable, it's outrageous, but, you know, my guys didn't do it. You know, there's, and they talk, talked about the concept of scapegoat, scapegoat and so on. That's a very good strategy for a D.C. jury. You know, the, I, I mean, I, I'm, it's maybe more than a stra- strategy. It, may, it might be right. But, um, but Roots, uh, Roger Roots for Pozzola, his approach was to... Uh, belittle the whole January 6th event. He said, you know, all of this, wh- why are we here? It's all because of a six-hour delay. Like, like, you know, they were supposed, they had to recess at 2.30, and then they were back at 8. That, what's the big deal? Now, that is, you know, to say that to a Washington jury, and I would hope to a jury anywhere in the country, is is a really provocative, offensive thing to say. You know, I mean, yeah, they stopped, they recessed at 2.30, they fled for their lives. Uh, So did the vice president. You know, this is uh, 140 police officers injured. Many of them could not return to service. Five people dead, maybe seven, depending on how you count. Uh, That was really a remarkable thing to say. There, uh, there's also several of them are making sort of self-defense-ish arguments that, you know, the... At some point, the uh, police resorted to what's called less than lethal force, where they began shooting, you know, they began using uh, chemical sprays, uh, shooting rubber bullets or pepper balls. And, uh, and, and so they're saying, well, well, no wonder we got angry. You know, no wonder the rioters got angry. And, you know, if, if only they had, hadn't used excessive force, uh, you know, no, there wouldn't have been a problem. Uh, these are not likely to work, you know, in my humble opinion, these are not likely to work with a D.C. jury. As you know, um, we could easily talk about Elizabeth Holmes and uh, 
the, the Theranos story because you, <clears throat> as we end this discussion, I want to make sure the audience knows your own background. Start with where are you from? Well, I, I'm actually, I, I grew up in Bethesda, uh, but I, I left uh, after high school and I, I spent most of my career in New York. Uh, Where'd you go for your undergraduate degree? I was Harvard undergraduate and uh, Yale Law School uh, some some years after uh, Stuart Rhodes. <laughs> and then... Uh, well, before Stuart Rhodes. Yeah. Did. And then what about your career? Where you, have you spent most of your time? Uh, in New York. I, uh, I practiced for five years uh, law, and uh, then I, I was a, a journalist in New York and uh, spent 12 years at Fortune and uh, then was... Uh, uh, and then uh, I moved down to uh, D.C. and uh, I guess uh, about a year and a half ago. And you work for which company now? Law uh, Lawfare. I'm a senior editor at a, co- a publication called Lawfare. And in fact, um, sometimes also called Lawfare Blog. I think we're going to change name soon to Lawfare Media. And um, uh, Ben Wittes is the... Uh, uh, if, if some people may know his name, he's in charge. Uh, he helped found it and runs it. And um, and in fact, m- my Twitter feed is uh, simultaneously sort of reproduced on the lawfare side as well. Elizabeth Holmes lied to me. Was that the name of that uh, piece you did for Fortune? Well, it's uh, it was uh, sort of a. Uh, mea culpa piece <laughs> that I eventually did. I, that was not the exact name, but. Uh, but something like that, yeah. yeah. Explain what you had done, though. You wrote an article, cover story for Fortune. Yeah, I was one of the. Uh, I, I wrote one of the early stories that uh, helped uh, uh, lift her to uh, prominence. Yeah. Anything wrong with that? Uh, it was not uh, the high point of my career, <laughs> but. Uh, well, I mean, she ends up being convicted. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. Fooling yeah. the public. Yeah, and I testified against her. How was that? Uh, that? That was tough. Yeah, yeah. Did you know her very well? I knew her some. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of for that article. I probably spent. I had t- ten hours on tape for that first article. I probably uh, spent more like twelve or thirteen, fifteen hours with her. Just as important as she was to this whole thing, what about her board? Why did they fall for it? I mean, these are people from uh, George Schultz to Henry Kissinger and beyond. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I haven't f- followed it lately. I, 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 the latest I under, understand is that the board might have not been a, a board board. They're saying, you know, that, well, we're not a fiduciary board. Uh, you know, I never knew that. But uh, uh, anyway, you know, there's there's still a possibility I might, you know, that's on appeal. It could be reversed. It's, you know, conceivable. I would have to testify again. I might be best if I not discuss it too much. There's a lot more to talk about when it comes to the trials that you're live tweeting what would you suggest to somebody if they all said i want to know more about this where would you go other than your live tweet which well, the best place is my, my yeah <laughs> is it all there since the trial started uh yes and um it's on it's also on lawfare and in fact 
what he does, uh, Ben, uh, he, and it's really Ben, I mean, because he's he sort of figured out the software, um, is uh, we, if you know the term unroll, uh, after a day, uh, he sort of reprocesses it so you can read it from from start to finish rather than having to sort of uh, go back uh, backwards up up a tweet uh, up a line of tweets so um yeah it's it's pretty much all and not the jury selection but the so far we've had nine days of trial and how long are you going to keep doing this kind of thing for lawfare uh, i'm going to well i'm going to try to finish this trial which is grueling you know it, it's probably we must have probably six more weeks of this five six at, at least um and then uh, you know I, i'll consult with uh, people at lawfare and of course there's questions about uh, what's going to happen with uh, various uh, trump investigations and uh, what's going to be the uh, most appropriate thing to look at Roger Parloff, this uh, has been an interesting hour. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, we look forward to your continuing live tweets. (laughs) Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts.com at c-span.org.